Welcome to Doha Debates. Each episode, we explore an urgent issue, present two opposing sides on that issue, and try to see where, if at all, common ground can be found. We hope to bring you a conversation that's well-informed, spirited, but civil and respectful as well. I'm Maria Karimji. I'm a journalist based in Karachi, Pakistan, where I've been reporting on the intersection of progress and culture for over a decade. Today, we're looking into a question of science and ethics. It's a fundamental question when it comes to advancing human knowledge. Should we stop experimenting on animals? Animal experimentation has been around for well over a millennia. It's been documented that in ancient Greece, great scientific thinkers like Aristotle used animals in their research. In more modern times, research on animals has been cited as critical to enabling breakthrough discoveries. The development of antibiotics, anesthetics, and insulin for diabetes all relied on animal testing. Most recently, animal testing was cited as a key component in the rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines. But some say we've reached a point where technological advancements have made animal testing unnecessary, and relying on it is nothing more than an act of cruelty. In recent years, India has banned the use of animal testing for cosmetics. And there's been a growing movement to protect animals and limit the ways they are used in experiments. So should we be testing on animals? And if so, what should be the limitations? Here to discuss this issue is Dr. Catherine Rowe. She is Chief of the Science Advancement and Outreach Division within the Laboratory Investigations Department at the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, better known as PETA. She joins us from Lexington, South Carolina. And also with us is Dr. Juan Carlos Marvizon. He's a researcher who spent his career at the University of California, Los Angeles. His work focused on examining what causes chronic pain and how to cure it. He's with us from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. I should mention that we have two global listeners who will be observing today's debate, and we'll hear from them a little later on. Catherine, let's start with you. As I mentioned, the case for animal research has always boiled down to this argument. Better that we test new drugs and vaccines out on lab rats first rather than humans. What, in your opinion, is wrong with this notion? I think there are a few things that motivate me and and, um, fuel my concerns about using animals in biomedical research. One is, of course, the cruelty. Um, We are inflicting a lot of harm on animals in our biomedical research endeavors, and that needs to always be first and foremost in our minds. But I also think that at some point, we reach a limit to where we are similar enough to other animals to get meaningful data. In the past, science has done a very good job of exploiting the similarities between us and other animals to make scientific advancements. That's True, I wouldn't argue that point. However, I think currently we are up against a wall of species differences. You know, we now need to face the differences between us and other species if we want scientific advancements to continue. And I think we really need to reinvest a lot of the money we're spending trying to make animal models more human-like and try to make human-based methods as, as good as they can be. You know, and and so that is my perspective. If we can stop harming animals and improve science, we should do so. And we should do it as soon as possible. Okay. Juan Carlos, your turn now. What do you make of this idea that the way we conduct animal experiments is inhumane and that too many animals die in the process? When we set up tests where you're actually expecting there to be some animal casualties, doesn't that cross the line into cruelty? 
Well, first, let me clarify one misunderstanding. Uh, what we, I think, saying that we do animal testing doesn't really represent how we use animals in research because people imagine that what we do is to just take a drug, inject it in an animal, or give it to an animal and see how the animal responds. Uh, I think it's more accurate to call it animal research of animal experimentation because animal testing is just a very, very small part of how animals are used in scientific research. What we use animal for, first and foremost, is for basic science to find out the basic facts about the physiology of animals, how the gut works, how the lungs work, how the heart works, how the brain works. And then, based on that basic knowledge, we can start designing approaches to uh, cure human diseases. But I also would like to emphasize that science is not just about practical applications. I fell in love with science when I was a young child, and I think that what most scientists feel in this love of science is this love for uh, really understanding the world and really understanding ourselves. And this is what we use animals for, and this is a perfectly legitimate um, goal of science. And um, it's very hard to know when something, when new knowledge is going to translate into something really good for humans. So that's why we're using animals. Now, going down to the basic question of can we translate what we know in animals to humans? The answer is that we are very similar to animals. In fact, all living beings are very similar. We all have DNA. We all use the same genetic code. Even plants use the same enzymes as we do. What happens is that um, birds and mice and rats, they all have neurons. Their cardiac cells are basically the same. What happens is that there are minor differences in proteins that makes them uh, slightly different in their response to drugs. But this has been addressed very recently by something that has a pretty awful name, but is actually quite good, which is the humanized mouse, which consists on taking the gene from a protein of a human and putting it in the genome of a mouse. So now the mouse has exactly the same protein that the human has. Like, for example, we can put the opioid receptor of a human in the mouse brain and see how the mouse brain will respond to opioid drugs, or we can put the receptor for another neurotransmitter. So the difference of species is really not a big problem. Catherine, I'm curious about your response. I think that the species differences, small or not, are a huge obstacle. If we want to study Alzheimer's disease in a mouse or, or Parkinson's disease in a monkey, we have to actively induce those diseases in those animals. And even when we take a lot of time and energy to do that, the symptoms of those diseases in those non-human animals are not the same as in the human species. So even the basic science research that isn't necessarily designed to have a clinical application or aren't designed to test a new cure or treatment are affected by even the smallest species differences. And we don't even know what all of those are yet. And trying to continuously make animals more human-like like making humanized mice or inserting genes that are affiliated with a disease in humans into animals hasn't worked in terms of translating into clinical treatments. You know, at what point do we say enough is enough? This is harmful. We've spent, as you said, hundreds and hundreds of years trying this and we have had some successes, but we are hitting on an upper limit of what we can learn about humans from non-human animals. And I say we 
do our very best to invest as much time and energy and money into human-based research because that will overcome the species differences. A lot of the non-animal alternatives need to improve. This is true, absolutely true, but we need to put money into that. Juan Carlos, do you agree with this idea that animals are actually a flawed proxy for humans and that much of the data gathered by these tests are giving us bad or irrelevant data? I absolutely disagree. In fact, it has worked. Every medicine that we use these days, every surgical procedure, every medical intervention, every diagnostic procedure has been developed and tested in animals. So it has been a huge success. Of course, there is a triage process. Um, pharmaceutical companies start with thousands, hundreds of thousands of compounds that first are tested in vitro. Then we test them in cell cultures, in slices and pieces of animals. Uh, a lot of compounds drop off. Then we test them in animals and a lot of compounds are taking off. And then we take them to clinical trials and a lot of compounds drop off. This is the way it's supposed to happen. If we will cancel animal research tomorrow, this will mean that no new drugs, no new medical procedures will be developed. And a lot of diseases that are affecting us will not be cured. If animal research was canceled in 2019, we will not have vaccines against COVID today and the epidemic will be ongoing. Catherine, is there something that you want to add to that? Well, I think that we have always used animals. Therefore, all new drugs and treatments were tested on animals. Sort of like saying, well, we've always taken path A to get to our destination, and then assuming that that means path A is the only way to get to that destination. Path B might actually be a faster, more humane, more economically cost-effective way, but we haven't tried it yet. I don't know where we would be in terms of scientific and, and health advances if several hundred years ago we collectively decided that you know inflicting harm on animals to benefit human animals was ethically problematic not to do it. I don't know. I don't have a time machine, but I do think that when animals are being harmed, when they're being used against their will, when they're being exploited, we need to put an increased level of scrutiny on whether or not we, we think that they should be conducted. And all of, all of the things we're talking about need to be taken into consideration. I think that would go a long way in terms of reducing the number of animals that we are using and increasing the value of the science that we're conducted on a day-to-day -day basis. First of all, um, there is, we scientists don't, don't have any perverse incentive to uh, use animals. If we could stop using them, we would. Uh, I remember when I when I first stepped into a lab and they took me to the animal room and they showed me the rats and and my feeling my first feeling was like do I really have to and I think that's what a lot of scientists feel the first time they are confronting with the fact that they have to work with animals um, but when we work with animals we we start understanding them and we re develop a relationship with those animals we don't want to mistreat those animals in fact we we go out of a way to treat those animals very well and taking care of them. We have every single uh, institution that uses animals in Europe but the United States have a veterinary team and a, and a team of people just dedicated to take care of those animals. And we really, we really develop a bond with them. So um, you cannot isolate a mouse of a rat in a cage without having a very, very strong justification for doing that and only for a limited period of time. Temperature in the room is very heavily regulated. Um, more 
heavily regulated than the, than the temperature in, in the rooms that sometimes we use for humans in our offices. So sometimes when we have a heat wave, you go to the animal room and this that's the coolest place in the in the building. And in fact, um, a lot of our experiments, we monitor the level of stress and the level of pain on these animals. So if they are in distress, this will show up in our experiments. Um, social isolation is against the guidelines, but many experimenters ask for scientific exemptions to those social housing, not just with mice and rats, but with primates. And that can be because they are studying infectious diseases and they can't risk having animals spread diseases. In a lot of neuroscience experiments, animals are fixed with equipment. These are surgically implanted electrodes and additional equipment that helps keep that equipment in place. And there are a lot of people who do not take that good care of their animals. And there often aren't very uh, strict consequences, but we have the documentation. We see it literally every single day where these violations come through. So I'm not sure that everybody is taking as good of care of the animals in the laboratory as Dr. Mavizone has, has indicated. I'm glad he has. I'm glad to hear that, but I don't think that that is the norm, and it certainly isn't 100% of the time. I do wonder how much more time, how much more money, how many more talented scientists we're going to put into, let's try to make the animal models work, instead of saying, can we try to study humans in a more precise way? Can we find more in non-invasive tools? Can we find more in vitro tools that will get the answers that we need about human physiology without harming animals, without continuing to divest our resources into this tool and get the treatments and cures that we need. Again, we're spending a lot of time and money trying to make these animal models work. A lot. Juan Carlos, I think we as humans probably feel a lot less squeamish about using horseshoe crabs in medicine than we do using chimpanzees. And in fact, there's almost no testing on chimps done in the U.S. or Europe. But you've argued that puts Western countries at a disadvantage behind places like China. Can you explain more? It's not chimpanzees. Um, chimpanzees are a very, very um, similar animal to humans. And of course, using chimpanzees is very problematic. I'm referring more to monkeys, like rhesus monkeys. So um, scientists in the United States and Europe that use monkeys for their research are regularly harassed by animal liberation groups. They, they picket their houses for a long time. They have committed terrorist attacks like burning cars and flooding houses on these scientists. And also they use the legal system to uh, prosecute these scientists. Um, so the Chinese have created a research centers where they have thousands and thousands of monkeys. They don't have a problem with animal liberation groups because they are a dictatorship and they can repress people as they like, which I don't condemn. Um, a lot of scientists in Europe and in the United States are taking their research with monkeys to China. Why is the Chinese government promoting that? Because of technology transfer. A lot of the new developments in medicine that are going to occur in the future are going to involve uh, researching monkeys. The monkey is a necessary step. We don't need to use a lot of monkeys. We can do most of the research in rodents. And then when we are ready, just before we take the technology to humans, we test it in monkeys. So there is a technology transfer to China, which means that in the future, if we cannot do these experiments in monkeys, the Chinese are going to grab this technology and then sell it back to us. 
Catherine, what can an international organization like PETA do to influence a country like China? Yeah, international organizations like PETA and others can try to influence what regulations China puts in place. And of course, we're always working on that. I don't actually think the regulations here in the U.S. are strict enough. I think that there are a lot of experiments with monkeys and other animals that have been going on for 50 years, and technology has already surpassed the the procedures that are being used in monkeys, but the individual experimenter who's conducting the experiments doesn't have the training. And this is an obstacle that I think isn't talked about enough. You know, we often hear, well, if we if we move away from animals in this area or that area, we reduce the use of a particular species. Primates is is a hot topic because I think I think people uh, relate to primates because we are primates. Um, but any given scientist who who started their career using animals could be 50 years ago. You know, scientists, we, we hang on. We, we stay in the field for as, as long as they'll let us. You're kind of stuck, right? This is, you're an expert now. You're an expert in, in pain models in, in mice or in Parkinson's models in monkeys. Even if some new technology came around that you wanted to try, that you wanted to transition your lab to, the scientific system as it is now has made that very challenging. Scientists are under an enormous amount of pressure to be productive. You know, you're only as good as your last paper. And so I think that there are a reasonable number of people who might really embrace some of the non-animal technologies, add them into their repertoire, or even transition away if we could provide them the support they needed. And I think we should. I disagree here with Catherine. I was very surprised that he said that we scientists are stuck to the old techniques that we know and we never renew our techniques. My experience in my 40 years career in science is quite the opposite. We are under continuous pressure of adopting the new techniques. Um, otherwise, the grant that you're writing will not get review. And I have been in review committees at the NIH uh, for many years. And we scientists um, help each other to develop these techniques. You know, very, very often I will ask a college, hey, could you please me uh, learn this technique? And I will send one of my co-workers to his lab and learn the technique there. Okay. For each of our debates, we invite global listeners to observe the conversation and also weigh in with their perspective. Today, we're pleased to welcome Andy Turku, who's been listening in from Ghana. Andy came into this discussion thinking that there are still areas where it's necessary to experiment on animals. Do you still feel that way now, Andy? Um, hello. Uh, yes, I, I still think that way. I, I I do not think the conversation is whether or not animal experimentation has certain flaws and challenges that we would want to look beyond and fix, but it's whether we have enough alternatives that we trust in so much that we are ready to leave that behind as a scientific method in trying to discover medicine and drugs for humans. And I think that's one part that the conversation has been short on in terms of what are the alternatives that exist? I know, for instance, there are live tissue simulations, there are computer model simulations, but how accessible are they? How perfect are they? Um, do they also have limitations that we need to be looking to? So my thoughts are still the same, given that I'm not really sure what the alternatives are, should we have a complete transition? Juan Carlos, what do you think to what Andy just said? Well, I completely agree. Um, in fact, um, 
what, when you see uh, modern scientific papers, what you see is a combination of all kinds of techniques. In the same paper, you will see a computer model, you will see cell stunning uh, cell cultures, and you will see animal experiments. So the science is one thing, so it moves from one field to another. But um, let's, let's address these alternatives to animal experimentation. So uh, computer models. Let me give you an example, see if, if, if I can get the message across. Imagine that um, we discover a new island somewhere in the Indic Ocean of the Pacific, and we want to explore that island. So, and somebody will say, okay, let's make a computer model of that island, and then we'll know what there is in that island. Well, we cannot make a computer model because the computer doesn't know what is in the island. Somebody has to go to the island and actually explore. Well, the same thing happens with the animal body and the, with the human body is an unknown entity. You have to go in the body and find out what it is there. And then with that information, you can make a computer model, but you cannot ask a computer for information that the computer doesn't know. Um, cell cultures. Cell cultures are on the downswing. Why? When you culture those cells, they transform, they change. So they are very different from the animal. So no, there are no alternatives. Computer models are not an alternative. They are a complement to animal experimentation. Cell cultures are not an alternative. And in fact, we are moving in the opposite direction. We are using transgenic animals to modify cells genetically inside the animals and put microscopes inside an animal to, uh, to image those cells. Catherine, I, I wanted to, you to have a chance to respond to this question of alternatives. Yeah, so in vitro models have come a long way. You know, we are now looking at organoids, we're looking at organs on chips, we're looking at three-dimensional structures that recapitulate aspects of, of human biology that you cannot get in an animal model. You can study development in organoids. There are a lot of questions that we don't have answers to in animals because of the species differences, because of the trajectory of human development compared to a mouse. And I, I agree that we need to continue to advance those tools. I think the question of whether we can have an abrupt stop, that, that tends to be the discussion. I would strongly argue that we need to stop using animals because of the ethical problems associated with, with inflicting harm on sentient, on sentient creatures. We also have learned a lot about the complexity of animals, about their intelligence, about their social needs, about their emotional complexity. However, to transition away from animal-based experimentation into more human-based experimentation is going to be a process. It's not going to be something that happens abruptly. And I don't think many people are asking for it to happen abruptly. Certainly on, on our end, we have a phase out plan. You know, we're looking at offering support again for people to transition away from animal experimentation if they choose to, or if they need to, because the science dictates that they do. Nobody's looking for an abrupt stop. We would like it, but we know that's unrealistic. We know that there are a lot of, of questions we still need to answer, and we know that there are a lot of improvements that need to be made and advances that need to be made in the non-animal methods. You know, I was in the scientific community for 25 years, and I can tell you, and I think anybody who, is, who has been a scientist, it's an enormous amount of work, regardless of what methods you're using, right? And individual methods do evolve and you do need to master those, right? That's, that's part of the job. If you spend 25 to 30 to 40 years trying to understand Alzheimer's disease or trying to understand addiction or pain or cancer, 
And someone like me comes along, questions the ethics of what you're doing and questions the value. I, mean, I wouldn't like me either. I mean, that's the truth. I wouldn't, I, I don't blame people for resisting me challenging their life's work. I wouldn't like it either. I don't like doing it, but I am that concerned about the harms. I am that concerned about the limitations of, of animal-based experimentation. I am that concerned about the financial cost. And I am concerned about the emotional cost because I happen to work with a lot of people who did use animals for their research for all the right reasons. They wanted good answers. They wanted to find, they wanted new knowledge. They wanted to, you know, potentially help people and regret it, you know, and there is, there is pretty solid data that people who are involved in the day-to-day -day care of, of animals in laboratories suffer. Whether you think that animal experimentations are the gold standard, I do not, or not. The reality is that they are harmful and we need to always keep in mind that we should be trying to eliminate them, not trying to make them more accurate, but less harmful. Um, we're also joined today by Fatima Nazar. She's from Pakistan and doctor of pharmacy candidate at Qatar University College of Pharmacy. Fatima has actually been involved in conducting animal experiments, and she has a question for both of our panelists relating to advances in technology. Go ahead, Fatima. Hello, everyone. So my question is, if we do find these computers or the models that can replicate what we have in the lab and we're able to find out technologies that are able to work both ways that can help us understand the animals better, we get the data and we feed it to the computer and we do get the computer model and we use it for research purposes, would that be a more comfortable approach to take? And on the other side, how do we convince a society that's so acclimated to the idea of animal research that all we believe in is that if this research has been successful in animals or if this drug has been successful in animals, that's the only way that we know that it will be successful in us. How do we convince society to accept this and how do we move forward with this approach? Catherine, can we hear from you first? I, I think that is a challenge. I think one of the challenges that we face with a lot of the non-animal methods, the in vitro tools, especially for regulatory type testing, is it safe? Um, is going to take community levels within the scientific community, first and foremost, to become comfortable. A lot of the papers that people submit with these tools are, are, are sometimes reviewers will ask, well, do you have a, an animal model comparison here? I think that that will come in time. I think that as we continue to adopt these non-animal tools, these alternative methods and get successes, people will become more comfortable. And I think people will become more excited to learn how to use these tools and to uh, apply for grants to use these tools, but it's gonna take a while. But at some point we need to accept and validate these non-animal methods and communicate to people why they may be better. Yeah, Juan Carlos, I'm curious if you have a response to Catherine on this. And I, I also want to hear from you about, um, Catherine's mentioned a couple of times about reducing harm. And I'm curious to hear from you about um, how you have personally assessed harm in experiments and measured pain. And when you thought that your experiment might not be worth the harm inflicted on an animal. Yes, in uh, responding to Fatima's question, my experience has been the opposite, is that um, scientific research of animals is a very tough sell to the public because people don't see the connection between the rat and the pill they are taking. They're taking pills every day, like me. 
they don't realize that a lot of animals have to die to develop those pills. Uh, we have, a, you know, for, for centuries now, ever since Frankenstein was written, we have the stereotype of the mad scientist, the cruel scientist that is very egotistic, that he will do anything just to advance his research. And that's simply not true. Now, to your question, Marija, how do we do research on animals minimizing harm? When I moved into um, pain research, I was bracing myself, saying, oh, my God, now I really will have to torture these poor rats. How can I do experiments to measure pain in a rat uh, without hurting them? Well, actually, uh, we make sure that the animals are not really in pain. They are just hyper-responsive to stimulation. So they, they are, their paw becomes more sensitive to touch. Uh, there is a scientist, um, a very good pain scientist in Canada called Jeff Mogol. Well, Jeff Mogol developed a way to know if an animal, if a rat or a mouse was in pain just by looking at their faces. And then he tested all the pain models that we have to see if the, if the rats and the mice were in ongoing pain or not. And he found out that most of the pain models that we use, in fact, they don't produce ongoing pain. We've had a lively back and forth today, but in each of our programs, we hope that our guests can find some common ground on the issue. So Juan Carlos, let me hear from you first. What have you heard from Catherine today that you agree with? Well, first of all, I was very surprised that Catherine used a much less confrontational tone um, that Peter normally uses. I was raising myself to be accused of torturing animals, and unfortunately that didn't happen. Uh, it was very, very polite. Um, the other thing that I, I was impressed with Catherine is that she shows compassion, not just to animals, but also to scientists. Um, I don't feel that I'm particularly traumatized because I have to use animals in research. But what I am traumatized about and what a lot of my colleagues are very scared about is the physical attacks that we have been experiencing from the animal liberation movement. So um, I will invite Catherine to openly condemn violence against scientists. I think that will be a good starting point where we can find common ground for dialogue in this issue. I think common dialogue is is possible, but I, I do think that the the polarization that leads to the sort of incidents that you're talking about, that certainly isn't something that we want to see continue. Thank you. Um, for anybody's sake, right? Not for not for the scientists, not for the people surrounding the scientists and not for the animals who we would like to see removed. But I would be remiss to not say that the harms are substantial. A lot of people will disagree with me and think it's worth it. You know what I mean? If, if, there's a, if there's a one in 10 chance that giving a monkey brain damage is gonna help my Aunt Esther or me who had a stroke, but we need to think about it because it is extraordinarily harmful and it's millions of animals. Many of them mice and rats, but it's still hundreds of thousands of monkeys and, and tens of thousands of dogs and tens and thousands of cats. We can do better. Would I like to see it all end tomorrow? Yes. Is that a realistic expectation? No. Do I think that we could work harder, maybe together, maybe not, but work harder to move that needle a little faster? I think we could, and I think we should. Um, thank you so much, Catherine. I also want to hear from Fatma and Andy um, what from today's discussion has helped either of you change your views or help better inform your beliefs on animal testing? Fatma, do you want to go first? Yes, sure. Um, I think this has been a really good debate. Um, I believe that there were 
a lot of arguments that made sense from both sides. And I think that this is something that changed a bit because before coming to this debate, I had this very big question in my head, in my mind, whether it's possible to actually have technology implemented to such an extent that we leave animals behind and we don't actually experiment with them at all. But now I know that there are many challenges that go when you take either approach and that there are ways that we can overcome them together and make sure that what we're doing is not um, unethical, but rather it goes in favor of both the animals as well as the scientific community. So I think that this is something that I really benefited from, from this conversation. Andy? I mean, this has been a very, very insightful conversation. There's a recognition on both sides that there are certain things that we would want to change. There are certain adaptations that we would like to see. Um, but what I'm seeing here is that there are efforts to try and develop alternatives, while there are equally efforts to try and maximize the efficiency or make experimentation much more humane. I think there would come a time where the, the systems itself would engineer a, a gradual shift, a natural shift towards um, or away from animal experimentation. And when that time happens, I think the scientific community would be very, very happy to embrace those alternatives. I hope so. I think we need to incentivize a lot of this, this now, though, you know, especially for younger scientists. Um, I think it would be great if we could get people entering the field, even if they are entering the field using, using animals, to also receive training and support for a lot of these new technologies to make sure that they are ready. When we ask people to make substantial changes in what they're doing, we need to give them the tools they need to do it. Happens to be a big part of what I do at PETA is trying to make sure that people who do want to move away from animal models, who do find that the alternatives are acceptable, can do it. And I do think that we need to try to hurry this along because while this transition is happening, animals are suffering. And, and again, that, that alone is reason to expedite it as much as we possibly can. Juan Carlos, do you have anything that you want to end our debate with? Well, um, I don't think the transition will happen, not in my lifetime anyway. I don't think any of us will see the end of animal experimentation. I don't see any technology that can even remotely to replace them. What I would like to say is... I think of all the uses of animals that we do, the most ethically justifiable one is using animals for scientific research. It's more ethical than using animals for, for clothing and more ethical than using animals as pets and more ethical than using animals as food, simply because scientific research will prevent unnecessary human deaths and will prevent unnecessary human suffering. And it will prevent unnecessary animal suffering. We have millions of pets that need also medical care. And to treat a dog and a cat at the vet, we, they need medicines and they need medical procedures. And these medical procedures and medicines need to come from somewhere. So we also need to do scientific research to treat the animals that we use as pets, to treat the animals that we use for food and treat the animals that we use for anything else. So that's why I don't think that we will see an end to animal research. And that's why I think it's completely ethical to do animal research. Thank you so much, both Catherine, Juan Carlos, Fatma, Andy. Thanks for listening to Doha Debates. I'm your host, Maria Karinji. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation. Our podcast is produced by FP Studios and Doha Debates. 
Our producers include Hannah Bottom, Rosie Julin, and Katrine Dermody, and Claudia Tady with production assistance. Special thanks to James Woolley. FB Studios Managing Director is Rob Sachs. Our executive producers are Jafit Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Mehta. To learn more about Doha Debates, please head to DohaDebates.com, where you can find out more about our other podcasts, short films, upcoming events, and more. And please, if you like our podcast, please follow and share your reviews. Thanks so much for listening.